All right, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to the book of Proverbs. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I want to welcome you. This morning, SIUE students, got a lot of you back. Glad you're here. Hope you're looking forward to your year. Um, We are in in kind of the tail end of of a little mini-series going through Proverbs chapter 3, and that's where we're going this morning. So flip over. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. And um, in our Bibles, that's page 528, 528, going over to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to be looking at two verses this morning, but I want to review a little bit because um, Solomon wrote these. Uh, This is not a random collection of Proverbs. Proverbs 3 is a a very um, deliberately ordered set of Proverbs or ideas. They flow one from the other, and uh, we do best in making sure that we understand them in their context. And so we began um, uh, three, four weeks ago at the beginning of Proverbs 3, and we took a look at verses 1 through 4. It says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. We explain that those four verses really lay the foundation for the rest of the chapter. What Solomon is doing is he's basically laying out this pattern, covenant behavior. You're in covenant with God. There's a covenant behavior that leads to the experience of covenant blessing. And in this case, the covenant behavior uh, is really to, to not let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, to, to sit in God's love for you to the point that it births within you a responding love for God. Sit in God's steadfast love and, and how that produces with him a pattern of faithfulness, right? God revealed himself as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. So sit in that. Let, let God's love work on the hardness of your heart on your stiff neck and and on your rebellious heart to the point that you actually respond in love back to God, right? It'll it'll break you from your self-love and reshape you in beautiful ways. And then flowing out of that, verses five through eight, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So again, that pattern, covenant behavior, covenant blessing. Covenant behavior is acknowledge God as God, right? Allow that truth to humble you, that that the God of the universe is also the God who loves you, right? And then not only allow it to humble you, but choose to be humbled. Place yourself in in, in a position of humility before God and commit your ways to him. Allow him to shape your every decision. Allow that truth to infiltrate your thinking. Don't have church life and home life and work life. Let, let this truth so saturate your life that it influences your thinking in every area of life. And in doing so, you'll find that God makes your path straight, the covenant blessing, that, that you will in the end walk um, the straightest path, not the easiest, but the straightest path between you and the blessing has, that God has bestowed on you. Um, because of his work for you. We went into verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Um, In this section, Solomon's getting uh, right to his son's heart by getting right into his wallet. Um, Basically, what he's saying is if you're really making progress with this, if God's love is really breaking your heart, it's going to show up here. It's going to show up with your money because we invest in what we love. 
we spend what we we spend give our money to what we worship if you follow the the trail of your money you will find your true treasure and what he's saying is as you come to trust god more than you trust your money as you come to delight in God more than you delight in your ability to store up wealth or give yourself security or provide for yourself pleasure, then you will find true blessing. Your barns will be bursting and your vats will um, be bursting, right? It seems counterintuitive because what he's basically saying is, look, I want you to diminish your assets by taking the first part of it and giving it away. Um, but, but in so doing, we are in fact preparing our hearts for blessing. What he's saying is while you diminish your assets, God will multiply your blessing. And we talked about, um, how this really plays its way out in our lives where we sit under grace to the point where it produces within us a gratitude, like a true gratefulness that flows because of the undeserved love we receive from God that will then manifest itself in a generosity. We will be freed from self-centered materialism. We'll be freed from the greed that grips our heart and we don't even notice it. And we'll become generous people, relationally and financially. We will give because we've been given to. We will bless because we have been blessed. And in so doing, the capacity of our experience of joy will be increased. Our barns will be filled and our vats will be bursting with blessing. Now this week we're taking a look at verses 11 and 12. And if you thought Solomon was getting tough last week, um, take a look at where we go this week. All right, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So this week we're going to be considering where is God's steadfast love and faithfulness in our suffering? Where is God's steadfast love and faithfulness when things aren't going well? When things hurt and things are hard. Bottom line is this, where we're going, you can trust God with your suffering because God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. We can trust God with our suffering because he will use what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So let's take a look at, at these verses and kind of unpack them a little bit and, and see where this takes us. Okay. So first of all, let's take a look at the covenant behavior because remember it's that pattern. Look at covenant behavior. And then we look at the experience of covenant blessing. So covenant behavior, um, uh, Solomon begins by saying my son, right? My son whom I love and, and I'm really trying to coach here. Don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. That's the, the covenant behavior. So there's a couple questions we have to deal with here. The first is, is what do we mean by discipline, right? What, what does it mean when we talk about God acting in discipline? Well, discipline itself isn't exactly a fun term, right? Discipline is not something we generally enjoy. Um, a lot of times we associate it with punishment, right? When you were a kid, um, you, you know, you, my, my parents punished me when I was little, right? Um, the difference is this, and I think it's, it's, it's a semantic difference. The word punish and, and, and discipline are actually synonyms and they can be used interchangeably, but there is a connotative difference. In other words, a, a difference in the way that we interpret them. A lot of times when we think about punishment, we think of vindictiveness, don't we? Like when we talk about somebody being punished, we're talking about kind of getting back at them, right? And even the best parent has had moments of vindictiveness. Let's just be honest. There have been those moments where your kid just drove you so crazy 
that there was a sense in which you felt like you were getting back at them a little bit, right? And I'm not saying that that's a good motive, right? Um, but there is a sense in which it's like, yeah, you're kind of getting what you deserve right now, right? And I'm just going to stand back and watch for a minute, right? There's that sense. And, and there's a, a pleasure we kind of take in saying, all right, you made those choices. Now here you get it, right? And I'm going to watch because you didn't listen to me, right? There's a little bit of sin there, you guys. There's a little bit of, of, of self-righteous vindictiveness going on. There's not with God, right? Let's just put that out there. There's no vindictiveness with God. Why? Because the issue of justice has already been settled in the person of his son. All of our sin has been punished in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross as our substitute, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die. He, he completely satisfied God in regard to justice. So as we uh, relate to God through Christ, it's not a matter of justice. Justice has been settled. It's a matter of discipline. And discipline is different. It's not about vindictiveness, right? Vindictiveness says, I'm going to make you suffer because you made me uncomfortable. Discipline is the application of discomfort for the purpose of blessing. Right? Parents, isn't that true? Discipline is the application of discomfort for the purpose of blessing. And and that makes us a little squeamish. Because we don't like the idea of, of actually purposely, that whole idea of purposely introducing discomfort into our children's lives. In fact, I think a lot of us actually feel guilty for doing it. Um, we shouldn't. Because it is a, a, a necessary part of actually allowing our children to be blessed, right? Discipline is, is our way of saying to our children, I, I want to protect you. I want to free you from the behaviors that are going to enslave you. I want to keep you from killing somebody and killing yourself, right? What happens if you don't discipline your kids? What's going to happen? They're going to die, right? They're going to hurt somebody and they're going to hurt themselves. If we don't introduce discomfort in the lives of our children in order to shape them, to free them, to bless them, they will follow the evil impulses of their heart right to the end result. And it won't be pretty. Right? In the book of Proverbs, it says the parent who doesn't discipline his child is stupid. <laughs> and it means it in the most literal sense, right? Incredibly short-sighted and ignorant. You, you are maybe avoiding the temporary discomfort of having to, to enter into that pain and actually maybe increase that pain temporarily to help shape and train and lead your child, but you are magnifying the pain that they'll experience later. That's not love, Right? So God is disciplining. Discipline is the application of discomfort for the purpose of blessing, to free us, to protect us, to change us. Discipline is then training. It's not punishment. It's not vindictiveness. It's training, right? You guys, we we discipline ourselves all the time, right? When you want to achieve a goal that you haven't already or is, is going to be difficult to achieve, you have to discipline yourself. In other words, you have to bring in a measure of discomfort into your own life in order to change in a way you want to change. Isn't that true? Anybody who's in athletics knows this. 
right? Every coach has to go through the process of, of leading you through that difficult season of change, right? In football, every year at the beginning of the season, we had Hell Week. Hell Week were these two-a-days, right? In the, in the morning and at night, and we ran until we puked every single time. Why? Because the coach knew that if we didn't get in shape right then, we weren't going to get in shape later. It was the application of discomfort for the purpose of change, positive change that was going to help us achieve a goal. We do this to ourselves, right? I'm... I'm uh, I'm 46 now, which means that um, my metabolism has shifted. I do not magically burn um, every calorie I consume without thinking about it and without effort, right? When I was younger, I was bouncing off the walls, right? I mean, I just um, radiated heat. I was burning calories and I couldn't eat enough. Honestly, you just, I could not eat enough. and, And I was moving a million miles an hour. Um, I noticed something shifted in my 30s. Part of that was my job as I moved into ministry and spent more time sitting in coffee shops, consuming pastries, talking to people. Um, I found that, that I was spending less time moving and bouncing off the walls and doing things and more time just getting fat. And, um, and as a result, I have discovered that there are seasons in which I need to cut some weight right? It's like, this is getting a little too far, right? I'm, I'm leaving my comfort zone of, of, of uh, self-acceptance. And so um, it comes to a point where I need to cut some weight. Well, I know how I motivate myself. Um, I motivate myself by setting goals. I'm a goal-setting person. I'm an achievement person. And so I, I set goals. And it's good if there are consequences to those, to those goals. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like if the goal actually achieves something or, or loses something, and so I discovered this thing online called a diet bet. I don't recommend it to everybody, um, but basically it's a way of betting that you're going to lose money, right? So you enter into this pool and, um, and, and <laughs> I was going to explain it to you. So what ends up happening is, is basically you're saying, I will lose 4% of my body weight in four weeks. So you, you weigh yourself and you take 4% of that. And over the course of a month, you need to lose that amount. And everybody who loses it splits up the pot evenly. And everybody who doesn't lose it forfeits their money. I'm motivated by a lot of things. One of them is money. And so um, when I enter these things, it's like, I will do it. I, I will endure whatever I need to endure to, uh, to lose this weight. And so I inflict discomfort on myself to achieve a goal, right? And that inflicting discomfort on myself can look like a thousand things over the course of a day. Right? Like on Sunday mornings, some very, very thoughtful soul brings donuts into the back for us to consume. And I'm not tempted by every donut, but there are certain donuts. You know what I'm saying? Like you have yours, I have mine. And when I see them, I need to eat them. Right? There's a piece of me that's like, that, that, that's not going to hurt. Right? But, but I have to inflict discomfort on myself. I have to say, no, self, you can't eat that. Right? And so instead, I avoid that room. And, uh, and I choose to eat vegetables instead of chips. It's amazing. You can eat a heaping mound of vegetables for the same amount of calories. You can eat like two chips. And, and so you, you just learn, right? I will forego taste. <laughs> right? I will skip the pleasure of eating for a short time to achieve a goal. So you, you eat the veggies instead of the chips. You drink water instead of the more flavorful beverages that are around, right? Um, and, and you're inflicting discomfort on yourself to achieve a greater goal. That's discipline. When we do it to ourselves, we understand it. When it's done to us, we don't. When we do it to ourselves, 
we trust our heart. When it's done to us, um, we start doubting the heart that brings the discomfort. Right? So, so why are we tempted to despise the Lord's discipline? It's because as much as we hate self-discipline, we hate it even more when it's not our choice. I don't know a single kid, and I've had three, and I know a lot more, but I know three really well. I don't know a single kid who, who at the point of being disciplined, looked up and said, thank you, Father, for inflicting this discomfort on me, because I know it is for my good. It doesn't happen, right? What do they do? They look at you with those cute little squinty four-year-old eyes, and they look at you and say, I hate you. <laughs> right? Why? It's because you're reminding them that they aren't God. And they desperately want to be. As much as their sinful little hearts would like to be the all-powerful deity of their little universes, they aren't. And, and we are blessing them and serving them well when we remind them that they're human. And not just human, sinful humans in need of redemption, in need of discovering humility. Because they will hurt themselves and they will hurt others if they are not corrected. So what is discipline? It is when God uses discomfort and suffering in your life to free you and to change you. So what does it mean that we are to despise Lord's discipline, right? When it says, um, do not despise Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, how do we know when we're doing that? Well, it means this. It means if we're despising the Lord's discipline, it means that we are seeing it we're looking at our suffering as if it were worthless. We're looking at our suffering and seeing it as meaningless, random, and worthless, and we come to hate it. And if we're honest, by extension, we come to hate the God who allowed it. A lot of us are really, really angry at God. And maybe we don't spell it out. Maybe we're not really clear in the way we explain it. But, but when we despise the Lord's discipline, when we see our suffering as meaningless, random, we come to get angry at the God who allowed it. We despise the Lord's discipline when we see our suffering as separated from his purposes. Now, this is really challenging for a lot of reasons, one of which is because our suffering comes from a lot of places, doesn't it? I mean, how do we know the difference between suffering brought on um, because of the discipline of the Lord? It's the Lord introducing suffering into our lives for the purpose of changing us and freeing us, right? How do we know when it's suffering brought on by ourselves? Because we're just dumb and we do dumb things, right? We say dumb things, we make dumb choices, we value the wrong things, and we bring suffering on ourselves at times. How do we know when the suffering's from our enemy? Because there are forces in this world set loose in this universe that are bent on robbing God of his glory and robbing us of our good. So how do we know when our suffering is brought on by the enemy? Well, here's the thing. How do we differentiate between the three? We don't. Honestly, we don't. Because in the end, it's all the same thing. God uses all suffering for his glory and for our good. 
Sometimes it's a, a very, in a sense, deliberate act in which God brings it into our lives. Right? In the New Testament, it, it, it talks about how there are times when God may even bring illness into somebody's life for the purpose of chastening them and disciplining them, waking them up out of the stupor of their pride and, and making them aware again of their need for dependence and humility and joy in their salvation, right? It, it is a way of, of not punishing, but, but blessing, right? God does sometimes very intentionally bring it into our lives. Sometimes he allows it by allowing us to bring it on ourselves. He does not intervene when he could. He does not stop us where he could have stopped us. He allows us to see the fruit of our attitudes and of our actions. And sometimes he allows the enemy to bring it. Sometimes he gives the enemy um, more freedom in his evil. But in the end, he's using all of it for his glory and for his purpose and for our good. Romans 8 says this. I want to put the, the verse up. Um, I wish we could spend time in the entire chapter, um, but I'm going to quote two verses, one for the context and one for the point. So 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Romans 8, if you're familiar with it, is this glorious passage that is often considered like the throne room of God as far as just talking about the glory of God and the beauty of God. The context is suffering. The context of the chapter is, is our suffering. For I consider that the suffering of the present time, the pain I'm going through, the suffering I'm experiencing is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God is active in the pain. They're, they're, God is telling a greater story for this world and for our lives than we tell for ourselves. And part of that story is him, in fact, working through the brokenness of this world to achieve things that are more glorious than we even understand. What he's saying is there's going to come a time when you get a perspective and you're able to see your life and your suffering in a context and the, present, the suffering of this present time will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. How do we know that's going to happen? Because the God of the universe is working all things together for his glory and for our good. You guys, listen, this, this is really good news. This is really hard. I get it. This is hard. But it's really good news because what that means is that there is no suffering in our lives that will not be redeemed by God. There's no suffering in our lives that will be left meaningless. It will in the end be for God's glory and our good. Guess God is never not at work. In your life, in your circumstances, God is never not at work. God is never checked out and on coffee break. God is never distant and not paying attention. He is always at work. He is present. And it's easy for us to acknowledge that in our blessings. 
Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this great, you know, that one day, that one, one precious day when your child acted like the little angel you know he really is. You're like, God, thank you for the grace of this one day. Thank you for the one night my child slept through the night. And I actually got to sleep, right? Thank you for not letting me get that professor, that one that I despise, and getting me the other one, right? Thank you. So in our blessings, it's very easy for us to say, oh yeah, God was active in that. Of course he was active in that. Man, and I'm, man, that was awesome. Thanks, God. And it's really easy for us to see him absent from our pain. God is never not at work. So what that means is that all of life is discipline, which sounds like a real bummer, but it's not. All of life is discipline. Because in all of life, God is changing us and freeing us and and delivering us into the blessing he has won for us through the work of his son. All of life is discipline, not punishment. All the punishment's been taken care of in the person of Christ. He absorbed all the punishment. We get all the blessing. So God uses every pain and discomfort to train us and to change us. So, so how do we do this, you guys? How do we do this? When, when we're in the moment of suffering, when life is hard, when things are going wrong, how do we put this into to practice? Well, this is where the covenant blessing um, that Solomon reveals helps us with the covenant behavior. Right? The covenant behavior is don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't grow weary at his reproof. Right? So we look at the blessing and it helps us with the behavior. Right? Take a look again at our verse. My son, don't, be, don't despise the Lord's uh, discipline and don't be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Remember the context, this whole passage, all of Proverbs 3 is an exploration of what it means to live life in an awareness of the fact that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that that is who he reveals himself to be. That's the name he gave himself. It's also how he revealed himself in the person of Jesus, right? He said, this is my name. And then he showed us his heart, right? By, by taking on flesh and, and, and entering our world to rescue us. To, to absorb our offense, to become our guilt, to, to die covered in our shame so that we, when he rose again, could be covered in his righteousness, completely satisfying God's uh, righteous anger in regard to our sin and our, in our behalf, right? So, so this whole passage is about us learning to sit in the steadfast love and faithfulness. And what Solomon is saying is, is you need to choose to see God's heart even when you don't understand his hand. There are going to be times you don't understand your suffering. There are going to be times it doesn't make any sense. There are going to be times when you're going to look at it and say, this is not good, and I don't see how any good could come of it. Right? I, I'm surrounded by friends suffering right now. And as I was writing this message, I'm thinking about each one of them. Friends whose children have chronic illness. Friends who are battling cancer and having to make choices about how they're going to spend the rest of their lives, whether they're going to be doped up on morphine or whether they're going to deal with the pain so they can engage with life. I am, I am aware of how difficult this is. So 
Solomon is saying you need to choose to see God's heart even when you don't understand his hand. You need to choose to trust God's hand because sometimes you don't understand his heart. And we do that by reminding ourselves that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a God of unwavering, unlimited, absolutely committed love. When God says he is a God of steadfast love, we don't understand the scope or the power of what's being described. And because he is a God of steadfast love, he is faithful. His every motive and action flows from that love for his glory and for our good. And here's what happens as you, in your suffering, recenter yourself on God's steadfast love and faithfulness, reminding yourself, this sucks, but God is good. The suffering will actually change you in beautiful ways. The suffering will actually increase your capacity to understand and experience the love of God. When our child is sick or we lose our job or people are unkind or uh, cruel to us, God's there. And he will use what he hates to produce what he loves. I use that phrase a lot. God will use what he hates to produce what he loves. Um, I didn't make that up. I've changed the wording a little bit and the rest of that, but I didn't make it up. That actually comes from um, a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Some of you are familiar with her. Um, Some of you aren't. Um, She was a young woman who grew up in Baltimore and was just this vibrant spirit. Um, Horseback riding, tennis, swimming, um, incredibly active, incredibly athletic, um, and incredibly talented. And then, um, and by the way, she's now known worldwide for her art. She's written over 40 books. um, And she's very, very active advocating for the handicapped because she's a quadriplegic. When she was uh, in her late teens, she went swimming in Chesapeake Bay, misjudged the depth of the water, dove in and broke her neck. And when she broke her neck, she was paralyzed from the shoulders down. Now you can imagine for a young woman whose life is so vibrant and so active, what a devastating blow that would have been. I mean, she defined her life through her activity. She was... She was um, a very physical, active person. And she revealed that over the next several years after her accident, as she was coming to terms with the fact that she would never run again, never play tennis again, never ride a horse again, never swim again, and in fact be utterly dependent in so many ways that she dealt with severe depression. Now, she was raised in a Christian home, and she was, she was a believer in Jesus, but in that moment, she had no ability to understand. She didn't have the concepts, uh, the, the capacity, the maturity the, 
to just like make sense of it. And so during that season, she was, it was dark. She contemplated suicide um, and couldn't imagine what life would be like, having been robbed of all the things that had given it meaning. So she could have gone two ways with this thing, you guys. She, she could have gone to bitterness. She could have. Um, but instead, she went to brokenness. So she, she had to decide, and she decided that her suffering wasn't meaningless. Her faith gave a context in which she could interpret her pain. And if she had decided that her, that her pain was, that her, that her suffering was meaningless and that it was random and that life is just cruel, that God is either inept or unfair, she would have hardened her heart into bitterness. She would have despised the Lord's discipline and grown weary at his reproof. If she had refused to see the hand of God's steadfast love and faithfulness in her pain, she would have grown to experience less and less of God's love. It wouldn't have made God love her any less. It wouldn't have changed the reality of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to her, but it would have reduced her capacity to experience that love. It would have hardened her heart and and turned it in And she would have been consumed and focused on and defined by her pain. But instead of turning to bitterness, she instead embraced brokenness. What do I mean by that? I mean that she acknowledged that the world is broken and that she is broken in a world of brokenness, that there is a sense in which our sin has broken the way things are supposed to be, including our own hearts. And that in that brokenness, we are completely, absolutely dependent on God to put it back together. And that God is absolutely committed to doing so. She embraced the the brokenness that allowed her to be absolutely dependent. You guys, there are some things that God wants to do in us that can't be done in any other way than through pain. And you're like, that sounds bad. Every doctor knows it's true. Somebody comes in and breaks their arm, allows it to reset in ways that are unhealthy. What do you have to do to the arm? You have to re-break it. You have to. And the re-break is always more painful than the original. But it is for your good. The temporary suffering produces a weight of glory. God will use your pain for your good. And no pain will be left unredeemed. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata has written a number of books, and um, I just want to read you some quotes. She said this, real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting his promises, and in leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and does all things well. 
It is a glorious thing to know that your Father God makes no mistakes in directing or permitting that which crosses the path of your life. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is our glory to trust him no matter what. Listen to that again. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is our glory to trust him no matter what. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So here's the thing. I know that um, if you are in that spot, of brokenness, if the pain is fresh. Um, This all feels very far away. The pain is very present and all-consuming, and God can feel very, very distant. I'm going to encourage you, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. He is not punishing you. This is not vindictiveness. He is not angry. He loves you. And he will redeem your pain. He will use what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And at the end of the day, at the end of the story, the eternal weight of glory will be so magnificent and beautiful that it won't even be worthy to be compared to the temporary suffering we go through as he is changing us and freeing us. So I encourage you to preach this to yourself. Preach it to yourself, right? Um, sometimes it doesn't feel very real. And, and, and just like a kid who's being disciplined, a lot of times in that moment, um, they don't necessarily feel like mom or dad loves me, even though it is the love that actually leads them to do what they're doing in that moment. So if you're in that place, I'm going to encourage you to pray a prayer of faith, even if it's not your heart's cry of faith. In other words, preach it to yourself. Sometimes the best prayer you can say is, God, I hate this, but I trust you. God, I hate this, but I trust you. Thank you for working through my pain to free my heart. And if you're suffering on behalf of someone else, if it's somebody close to you, a child or a friend who is suffering, pray this on their behalf that they might be awakened to the love of the God in the midst of the pain. That they might, even in the middle of the suffering, feel a genuine closeness and nearness of the Spirit of God, the God who is redeeming and restoring, even though in that moment it's not pleasant. God, I hate this, but I trust you. Thank you for working in my pain. All right, we're going to go into a time of response. Um, I'm going to create some space for you to pray and, and, and just do some business with God. Let God speak to your heart. If there are things you want to talk to us about, um, let us know. There are a couple ways you can do that. One would be to fill out the worship response card that's in your bulletin. If you have prayer requests, write those down. We pray over those every single week. If you're a guest with us, let us know you were here. We'd love to know. Drop those in the response boxes at the front or by the door. Um, If you want someone to pray with you this morning, um, I'm going to ask a couple community group leaders just to go stand by the door. Our community group leaders are, are some faithful, godly leaders in our church, and, and they would be happy to pray with you and for you. Um, so if this morning there is something that is stirring up and you just really want someone um, to pray with you and for you about it, um, just head over there and, and 
some community group leaders, again, if you wouldn't mind preemptively going over there, I would appreciate it. All right, so as we close up, um, this morning, instead of doing reflection questions, um, I just was sitting in this. I decided we're going to do a blessing. Um, and um, the way we do blessings here, this is going to be a little bit odd if you've never been part of it. Um, and, and if it makes you feel weird, I'm okay with that. Um, and, and because I think it's, I just love these. And so what, this is what we're going to do. I, we're going to cup our hands. And, and you don't have to look around. You don't have to feel awkward. Nobody's looking at you, okay? Um, just cup your hands. And this is, this is a very physical way of simply saying, I receive the blessing. Right? I receive the blessing. And then, and then I'm going to read the scripture over you. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. And at the end, we're going to say, and all God's people said, amen. And we take our hands and we wash the blessing over our head. And it's our way of saying, I own this. This is mine, right? Saying amen is not just a couple syllables. It's a word that literally means let it be true or it is true of me. So when you say amen, it is a statement of a declaration of faith saying this blessing is mine. I, I, I receive it by faith. Okay. All right. So cup your hands. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to participate. Just bow your head for a moment and, and, and let God speak to your heart. I want to read again, uh, Romans eight, 18 and 28. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Follower of Christ, the eternal creator God, the all-powerful, all-holy God of the universe is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is committed to you and he is not absent from your pain. And if there is pain that is filling your vision, if there is pain that right now seems to be filling your hands, know that it is Christ's hands who hold yours. Two hands that are pierced because he is not absent from your suffering or distant from your pain. He has entered in. He has suffered with you and is walking with you to deliver you into the fullness of his blessing. This is yours by right. Not because you've earned it, but because he has earned it for you. And by faith, we know our future is glorious. And all God's people said, amen. Take a few minutes. We'll share communion in a moment.